We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet So we are continuing with Iqbal, still in the preface. Yeah, where do we leave off? We left off before the italics. Before the italics, okay. So they are perpetuating methods which were created for generations... <coughs> Possessing a cultural outlook differing <coughs> in important uh, important uh, aspects from our own respects from our own. <coughs> so there we're talking about the Sufis, who who he is saying have also gotten ossified and are unable to address modernity. Now we're in post modernity, and so uh, I would suspect he would say the same thing even more. And back then, we were speaking about what were some elements that was part of a different cultural outlook. Number one, secularization dominating the uh, uh, Muslim thought, um, not just in non-Muslim majority lands, but even in Muslim majority lands. And then on top of that, a sense of defeat that the Europeans are dominating the world. And then on top of that, the various forms of technology, especially media's dominance on, on how we perceive ourselves and perceive our world would be some different examples, as well as the dominance of science itself uh, that goes with technology and such. We talked about like, critical thinking. And as, as, as far as educational systems, yeah, critical thinking, um, as it is provided through academia, Western academia, meaning Western academia becomes the standard of systems of education. Uh, across the globe uh, then and even more so now. So then we have this uh, this ayah, your creation and resurrection, uh, like the creation and resurrection of a single soul. So he is saying a living experience of the kind of biological unity embodied in this verse requires today a method physiologically less violent and psychologically more suitable to a concrete type of mind. Again, most of these points are often easier to understand in the reverse, starting with a concrete type of mind. There, uh, through the, the dominance of science, the search is for knowledge that is objective and thus concrete, as opposed to subjective or speculative. And so a living experience of the kind of biological unity. So there's a point here or he's going to be making both subtly and overtly throughout the text is that one of the problems is that we've departed from a Quranic ethos into an Aristotelian ethos. Mm -hmm. And so he is saying what needs to happen, what he is saying over the course of this text, what needs to happen is the embodiment of a Quranic ethos. So your creation and resurrection are like the creation and resurrection of a single soul. And so, so one way to read that is that your individual life from, from creation through birth, through death to resurrection, the whole of creation itself is going to have a similar pattern. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which means there's going to be some commonalities between you as a microcosm of the macrocosm of creation, whether we speak of all of humanity or creation in itself. So that's biological unity? So that would be biological unity. 
Um, so in terms of embodiment of, um, is it, so he's saying we, he's proposing embodiment of religion or of what? So, so the ayah is, it, he's talking about this, this concept that is embodied in this ayah. And so then what does that mean? It means that, you know, the, the hadith that we are often quoting, you know, that the whole body, the ummah is like one body. When one part of it hurts, the entire part of it hurts, mm-hmm. right? Now apply that to rise and fall of iman. That one part of the of the ummah is suffering in iman. The entirety of the ummah is suffering in iman. And and so you can get a sense of the condition of the ummah by looking at sectors of the ummah. Well, the easiest example of that would be Hajj, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to get a sense of the condition of the ummah, look at the condition of Hajj. Every aspect that you can imagine, whether we're talking about what is the condition of people while they're on the Hajj, what is their conduct like, what is their iman like or the process of getting approval for Hajj and such. If you want to get the sense of a community, look at the condition of Jummah. Are people showing up at time? Are people showing up late? What is the Jummah khutbah about? What is their conduct and such? And that will get you a sense of the condition of a community. But then think of the Iman of the whole community as an interwoven tapestry. And so I suspect that's part of, partly what he's talking about. And he's speaking about this in the context of the Sufis, that the Sufis are the ones who are focused on, the, on rising or nurturing people's imams. And so he's saying they need a method that is physiologically less violent. So what was the practice in the past? You had these very, very aggressive practices like, you know, if you go to Rumi's uh, tomb, right next to Rumi's tomb is a museum, which is sort of, sort of trying to recapture what his school was like. And if you were a student in the school, you had to sit in this little nook in this wall for something like 90 days. And, and your shoes are on the ground, and they feed you and such, but your conduct in those 90 days will reveal whether or not they're going to teach you. And at the end of 90 days, the direction your shoes are facing, either inside or outside, will dictate whether or not you pass. Just sitting in this nook for 90 days. Okay. And so they have things like that. I had a teacher who himself was the grand st- grandchild of a big Sufi sheikh in Cameroon. And and one of their requirements was you had to sit in sewage, like, you know, where everybody would throw their trash. You had to sit there for X amount of time mm-hmm. and not beg and then just rely on Allah for people to provide for you. Okay, that's not going to work in modernity. Okay, I mean, except for a small amount of people, you know, you're not going to be able to get people to go sit in sewage or go sit in a little place in a wall. <coughs> So it's kind of like he's saying people are softer now. Okay. So would he say that there's value in that or no value? I think he'd say there's value in that, but that it's not going to be successful. Because people are unwilling to do it. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, even what it takes to get people to, to study with me um, um, is far different than what it would have been in past eras. Um, and we're speaking about an era right now where people are still giving respect to knowledge. And then by extension... He's saying uh, physiologically less violent, psychologically more suitable to this style of thinking. And so a way to think about it is people might find those violent practices, what he's calling a violent practice in my understanding, people will find those more exotic and appealing only in that way. You know, like a hipster will do something like that. Mm. But a common student is not going to be interested. And more than that, a common student is going to say, what am I going to get out of it? Like, okay, you want me to become humble. There's easier ways to make me become humble. See what I'm saying? So the short version of what he's saying here is that the methods 
that work in the past are not going to work in the present. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a need to uplift Iman in people. But the methods that we've had before, you can still do them, but you're going to have decreasing uh, attraction for those things. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, next. In the absence of such a method, the demand for a scientific form of religious knowledge is only natural. So, back to this point about academia being centered on critical thinking and science being the bedrock of, of knowledge today. Your approach to Dean has to somehow fit into that. Now, don't confuse this with being scientifically proven. Mm-hmm. You know, that people think, well, let's talk about the embryo and the salt water and fresh water being separated. No, that's not what we're talking about. This approach in which human nature uh, exists in patterns and then looking at those patterns to figure out what operates, what works. So kind of like a social scientific approach. Sort of like that, yet through the lens of Dean and faith. So meaning Iman, then the rise and fall of Iman has patterns that we can... uh, uh, Seeing people, and I already do. That's, I mean, I don't have any sort of sophisticated system for that. But when students come into the office, I'm looking for the patterns to get a sense of what is their personality type, what is, for lack of a better term, what is their iman type, then to figure out what works for them. So this student is going to get a gratitude assignment. This other student is going to get a sajda assignment. This other student is going to get a sadaka assignment. So your your model is assignment based, kind of. It's like kind of like. Mm-hmm. School-based. Yeah. Um, what are alternatives to that? I think at the end of the day, it's always going to be assignment-based, but uh, think of the difference being this. One will be individual assignment, go back, do this, and come back. The other will be, as a group, we're all going to do this now together. Okay. So whether, And usually that's, we're all going to recite these athkab together. We're going to do these, group, these, these, uh, these lessons together. And I'm also looking through a lens that everyone is basically like an individual. Okay. Um, yeah. So in like a group session, is the, is the individual um, personality still recognized or is it like... Less not? so, you know, um, except in sort of a hierarchy. Okay. You know, you got the sheikh and you have other people, you know, that are various levels of murshids. Okay. Yeah. So, um, historically, like I can't conceive of a way to approach personal development except by like... A catering it to your own personality. Yeah, I mean, you will still have that to some degree, but most people don't have access or time for that because most people have to work. So even think about at the time of the Sahaba, like look at the whole picture of the Sahaba learning. You had someone like Abu Bakr who, who seemed, be pleased with him, who seemed to be with the Prophet, peace be upon him, all the time. Mm-hmm. But you had Umar who would alternate dates with another companion. Okay, I'm going to work today and you spend the day with the Prophet. And then at the end of the day, tell me what you learned. And then tomorrow, I'm going to spend the day with the Prophet and you work. So that was another group. Then you had the Ashab Sufa, who on the one hand were too poor to do anything else. And Abu Huraira is sort of in that circle, although he's sort of like a voice on his own. But these are people who are not doing anything else and are too poor. So poor that they don't have enough, uh, they barely even have enough clothes to cover them. Abu Huraira would frequently pass out because of hunger. People thought he was just crazy. But no, he was literally passing out because of hunger. And, and so you had those people. In the context where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is sort of teaching all day long. This is more so Medina than Mecca. 
And so there you have different scenarios, right? But in uh, our common society, you might have that in many overseas places where a person is relying upon, you know, donations of, of murids and stuff. But in America, everybody's working, right? Even a common Sufi sheikh in America is probably going to be working on something. And so as a possibility, that's hard to do. How do these people go to war? Meaning, you're talking about like, like in Muslim-majority countries? or No, I guess like a side note is how did these people who are like, like starving and destitute go to war and like win battles against... Yeah, that's... that's like uh, so there's the eye in the Quran, you know, how many times is it that, you know, a smaller group right. defeated a larger group? And I would include a group that has less power, but more himma, you know, more motivation, more fortitude, is defeating these, these bigger forces... No, that's I think a really good question about just the nature of what religion gives you or the power that the prophet is putting into his followers. Peace be upon him. Okay. In the absence of such a method, the demand for a scientific form of religious knowledge is only natural. In these lectures, which were undertaken at the request of the Madras Muslim Association and delivered at Madras, Hyderabad, and Aligarh, I have tried to meet even though partially this urgent demand by attempting to reconstruct Muslim religious philosophy with due regard to the philosophical traditions of Islam and the more recent developments in the various domains of human knowledge. So when we think of science and philosophy, what's the relationship between philosophy and science historically? You know? I'm not sure. So Aristotle is basically... Most much modern knowledge and categories is coming from Aristotle. And so Aristotle had a realm of philosophy called natural philosophy. That evolved into what we call science. Okay. And so so in academia, science is the default. And let's take a step back. Academia is basically answering the question, how does the world work? And part of the way the world works is in patterns. And so the different sciences are looking at different types of patterns. So physics is one type in terms of matter and, and, and such, and then advanced physics is moving beyond the realm of matter. Chemistry is looking at the realm and through the realm of chemicals or molecules and such. Biology is life forms. And then the secondary sciences would be the human sciences, saying that people work in patterns. And then everything that can't be identified by patterns becomes an art or humanities. Digital humanities is trying to now identify patterns in, the hu- in things that would be in literature and such. Like, for example, if you go through all the hadith, what are the words that are used most frequently? That would be in the realm of digital humanities, using compiling data that way. Or Shakespeare, what are, the, what are the phrases or the types of characters that he uses most commonly in his structures and stuff? And that didn't exist before... Technologies? It's technology facilitates it much more. Because obviously we had hadith sciences for for a thousand years and more. But now, you know, what would take a person one, you know, quarter of a lifetime, if not more, now can be done in, you know, a year. And the hard part is just entering the data. Mm -hmm. Retrieving the data can happen in a matter of seconds or minutes. Right. right? And so it's just you're able to do more. And so, so there... He's starting with philosophy, and he's trying to reconstruct philosophy. And at the core of philosophy is what? It's asking questions. 
and then through those questions, critiquing answers and developing categories. So that's in a nutshell. If we were to reduce philosophy to its utter, utter rudiments, that's what that is. And so that's what he is trying to do here. At the present moment, is quite favorable for such undertaking. Why? Because classical physics has learned to criticize its own foundations. So he's speaking in the decade of Einstein. Mm -hmm. Not just the era, but the decade. Because what is Einstein saying at his core? He's saying Newtonian physics doesn't work for two realms of reality as we know it. The subatomic and then the galactic, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Newtonian physics doesn't work there. It works for all the stuff in between. And so classical physics has learned to criticize its own foundations. And so he's sort of saying we can infer that this is what Dean has to be able to do. The, the knowledge of Dean, I should say, is critique its foundations. Um, as we're going to see, he doesn't go so far as to say, okay, we've got to critique the Quran. But we have to critique the stuff that is post-Quran, post-Prophet. Peace be upon him. Mm -hmm. So... Um... In like literalist spaces, they would argue that all this tradition is transcendent beyond like yeah. Um, criticism. Yeah, and so so for example, um, at Notre Dame, uh, Dr. Musa and Dr. Mirza, so Ibrahim Musa and Mahan Mirza, although Mahan is on a different project now, they have a project called Contending Modernities, where they are bringing in ulama usually young ulama, so these are graduates from madrasas, and, and putting them through a couple of types of courses. One is making the point that the books that form what you are taking as transcendent texts of tradition were written in historical moments. And that can be illustrated by various passages in those books. So a lot of people try to, try to refute Bukhari by saying that there is a pro-Umayyad sentiment in some of the narrations of Bukhari. And I say, yeah, some of the narrations can be read as, as uh, pro or critiquing the Umayyads. Um, but that doesn't negate Bukhari, right? Or if you look at the Aqidah of Imam, of Imam at Tahawi, uh, which is from the 900s, so Bukhari is from, from the uh, seven and 800s, the Aqidah of Imam at Tahawi, there's a couple of bullet points that today might seem completely irrelevant. You know, like the Qur'an uh, being the word of God, uh, the eternal word of God, which is fine as a theological point, but it was written then because that was a debate in their time. See what I'm saying? And so they're arguing that these books that you are taking as transcendent are from particular times and places, and it can be illustrated in passages in, in those books. Which means, if that's true, then it does not negate the possibility of writing new books. Mm -hmm. yeah. and that's uh, essentially the point point. and they're arguing the need is to write new books because you have this other modernity that is taking place that is dominating the whole world and your curriculum is not designed to address it so how prevalent is that attitude in like the modern Muslim uh, in the, I would say in the, in the western Muslim sphere so in the western Muslim sphere you have a couple voices so you have the people that are in academia which more often than not seem to want to throw out the entire thing 
and say it's patriarchal and it's it has these other problems in terms of its relationship with power and you know say let's invent something completely brand new which is you know everybody's welcome to try more often than not the end result is you don't have something with much depth or the worst is, uh, is that you might create a whole separate sect without refuting or absorbing or becoming absorbed by what is the main thrust that we call tradition. Think of tradition as just a centuries-long conversation mm -hmm. where they start agreeing on certain things over the course of centuries. That's one aspect. Another voice would be the, the common professional who is not well-read, who has dabbled quite a bit, who will say, yeah, yeah, these, you know, these ulama, they don't know what they're talking about. And, and, and they tend to not even give very much support for the knowledge production in any capacity, whether they're talking about university people or, um, you know, people in madrasas or what have you. I mean, I have friends who are getting PhDs in Islamic studies who have no jobs available for them, uh, either in academia or definitely in the community. And, and so they're literally getting jobs working for, for consulting companies and something that has nothing to do with their Islamic studies, PhD. And, and so, so there is a, uh, those are almost like the two big voices. And there are smaller voices of people that are wrestling with these big questions. How about, so, in the madrasa space, what are the voices like? In <coughs> most madrasa spaces, uh, it seems as though you have a couple places where people are wrestling with the big questions, trying to answer them within the lens of the tradition. Okay. And, and they are coming up with new, you know, relevant answers uh, for specific questions, but not the big questions, because the big questions, often the answer might be revolution. Right? So when we're talking about, okay, bioethics... So Sheikh Amin uh, in Tarul Qasim, he's one of the leaders in bioethics, you know, mashallah. But you're not going to hear a critique of, of a capitalist, you know, infrastructure that dominates the world. You will hear, uh, you know, answers regarding particulars of Islamic finance relate to me and my daily life. Um, in part because what is going to be the answer for, for uh, you know, addressing the capitalist uh, imperialist structure? Either it's going to be revolution, or you just wait for it to collapse on its own. You know, that's usually what the case is going to be. And I feel like traditional scholars are also usually pro status quo, just because there's stability, less, and like people won't die. Yeah, and so a lot of people don't understand the points. You know, they're going after Hamza Yusuf, Sheikh yeah. Hamza Yusuf, because of his proximity to power. I mean, there's multiple conversations we can have there, but in his outlook which is a legitimate outlook, but not the only outlook, but it's a legitimate outlook, is that, you know, you can't risk uh, anarchy uh, in the name of getting rid of tyranny. That anarchy might be worse. And so he's looking through a lens of stability, that if you have stability, consider stability to be very, very precious, because that is easily lost. So, what is... So, who has authority to decide which way... An Islamic nation is run. If it's an Islamic nation, yeah. so a Muslim majority nation, it's power that is determining it. Now, you may have someone who is not part of power who has such a large following that they do have a voice. So this would be the case in Shia tradition of various ayatollahs that have that level of, 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 of authority 
uh, granted to them by their people. And in Sunni tradition, it's more often certain Sufi sheikhs and a few muftis. So, for example, in the subcontinent, Mufi Taki Osmani has that level of esteem by so many people. You know, or someone like Abdullah bin Baya has that level of esteem by, by so many people. And then various Sufi sheikhs will have that level. And it's just basically the size of the movement that they lead. Okay. You know. But otherwise, authority, it's in anybody's hands. You know. Because, like, you're <coughs> saying about, like, historically, we've had Muslim empires and whatever, but was it, like, scholastic legislation, or was it, like, political legislation? It'd be a mix of all these things. So a lot of Islamic legislation um, is either being written in the Muslim equivalent of the ivory tower, or it's happening in the courts. And sometimes those two are very different conversations. Sometimes one is informing the other. Uh, um, but think of this, this book is, is being written in academia, you know, separate from the masses. Because Iqbal, what is he writing for the masses? He's writing poems, right. you know, calling on people to work on developing their iman and developing Islamic zeal and such. This book, uh, a layperson will, will fly through this or not at all and might just get bogged down by the complex English. Yeah. Okay, a few more things. What time is it? Oh, you have a phone, mashallah. 6.53. Okay. It's not activated yet. <laughs> okay, we'll move that step by step. Okay. Um, as a result of this criticism, the kind of materialism which it originally necessitated is rapidly disappearing. And the day is not far off when religion and science may discover hitherto unsuspected mutual harmonies. That's kind of a prophetic statement. So he's saying materialism, a.k.a. Newtonian physics, was what all this stuff started from. But now in the Einsteinian era, we might see religion and science start to cross over. And we are sort of going in that direction. More in the sense that physics is saying that there's all these unknowns that we just don't have an answer for. It must, however, be remembered that there is no such thing as finality in philosophical thinking. Okay, so the point is that this book, um, whatever it's accomplishing, let's say it does accomplish what it's seeking, a hundred years from now, which is almost how old this book is, um, the questions and the answers might be very different. And a hundred years from, from, or I'm saying now, a hundred years from the time of the book, then a hundred years from now, the time that you and I are reading this book, this issue might come up again. This is just part of the social evolution of, of humanity. As knowledge advances and fresh avenues of thought are open, other views and probably sounder views of those set forth in the lectures are possible. Okay. So there's also an intellectual humility that's taking place. I'm giving you the best that I got. Someone else might come up with something better. And our duty is carefully to watch the progress of human thought and to maintain an independent critical attitudes towards it. And so... Who is our here? Our, I think he's speaking of the Muslim Ummah. Okay. Whereas before, I think he might have been using we. In, no, he's using I in reference to himself. But this last part is, this is something as an Ummah we have to do. Keep watching the development of thought. And keep an independent critical attitude towards it. Meaning... Don't automatically refute it, which is what a lot of contemporary young Molanas do, is that if they get whiff of an idea coming from the academy, they automatically try to negate it to their own peril. 
is number one, they alienate a lot of of people they don't need to. And more often than that, they are not understanding the ideas they're critiquing because a lot of these ideas are not that uh, problematic. So when we talk about feminism, the first issue is what type of feminism are we talking about? So some people try to throw away all feminism. But there's some feminisms that would not work within an Islamic paradigm. There's some feminisms that absolutely would. And feminists will say that. You know. and, but you'll have those people that'll write it off saying that this is you know, all part of critical theory and it doesn't work. And uh, they're hurting no one but themselves and the people they're trying to teach. And thus they are illustrating the irrelevance that is being addressed here. So nowadays we have like the concept of intersectional identities. Yeah. Um, so I can conceive of a Muslim being a Muslim and a feminist and a, 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 a Marxist and a whatever whatever other labels we have. Yeah. Um, and those are different identities that a person has. Mm-hmm. So in the past, would a person not conceive be able to conceive of having multiple identities beyond Muslim? I think that was always the case. The emphasis here is that all of them are part of me, as opposed to the next person saying, first and foremost, I'm Muslim. Next person, who's the next person here? Yeah. So, meaning, so, so we have one person who says, okay, I'm Muslim, I'm a Marxist, I'm a feminist, uh, my orientation is such and such, I'm cisgender, and all these are part of the mix that make up me. That's fine, but is one of those your dominant identity? the point that it's beyond your identity it is the ethos of your being and so the assumption here is that we're talking about people who are or who are seeking for the relationship with Allah to be their dominant uh, outlook that is their aspiration so in the past was that a given or was that not a given I think that was a given until the era of secularization you know that your identity was your religious identity that was your number one identity. And that's, that's who you are. So, technically speaking, uh, what is someone's number one identity today? It's their national affiliation. That's their number one identity. Because that is going to indicate where a major portion of your money is going to go to. Uh, that is going to indicate what law you're bound by. Everything else is actually secondary to that, unless you're an anarchist. And you're just rebelling against the system. Right. So. I forgot my question. Okay, take it down. You think of your question. I gotta go run and open the door. Okay. For the next person. I can actually sleep then. Okay, you can stop here, inshallah. We can stop here. Alright, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nasafirika natubi lake, wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.